0: Hello and welcome to Always Take Notes. In this episode, Cassia and I spoke with Helen Lewis, who is the deputy editor at the New Statesman magazine.
1: We spoke to her in the bowels of the uh, New Statesman offices, and she was really interesting about lots of different topics, including her time as a trainee sub-editor at the Daily Mail, and also gave a very useful tip about what to do when you're staring down the barrel of writer's block.
0: Really informative interview and a lot to take away from this one, so we hope you enjoy it.
1: And thank you very much for having us. Thank you for coming to yeah. We call it the podcast bunker. The podcast bunker. Yeah, I like it. Um, could you uh, start off by telling us about your kind of entry into journalism? Um, I, yeah, deeply conventional, I
2: suppose. And I did English at university. I was at St Peter's College, Oxford, and then after that I went to City University, where I did the what was then the postgraduate diploma in newspaper journalism, and I walked straight out of that into the Daily Mail trainee scheme as a sub editor. Um, and everyone at the time I remember being quite sort of snobby about why anyone would want to be a sub, and they'd kind of like, you know, don't you want to be a reporter? Don't you want to be kind of there in your flak jacket under fire? And I was like, yeah, but the bit that I really want to do is the bit where you take the raw materials and you kind of craft it into a, a package and a story, because that's on particularly on a mid market like the Mail that's the bit where you actually tell the story it's about the presentation you know the the copy is a sort of starting point in a negotiation it's not like it would be on a on a magazine like the new statesman so i did that for i think nearly five years and then got a transfer over to the um, features commissioning desk uh, which was a rather more brutal environment than the uh, the, the rather nicer waters of the uh, the news subs department so i after about a year of that i decided to jump ship and ended up um, applying for a job here as assistant editor which i got and i did that for let me think, two years and then I got promoted to deputy editor and now I've been ensconced ever since. So yeah, I've only, I mean, I've, I've freelanced all over the place and I did, you know, lots of shifts around the place, but I've only had two big employers in my career.
0: And rolling back to the start, what was the, the mail like as a place to work? And particularly that training programme we were just talking off-air yeah. that has a reputation for brutality and also locating you in a sort of grim northern town for an indeterminate period of time? Is that...
2: I kind of talked my way out of the uh, the grim northern town. I mean, there are lovely northern towns as well, but um, you have to train in a very small village called Howden, which is outside Hull. Um, that's the press association's um, training base. So I went and did that. But because I'd already got um, a flat in London, I was in part in a flat shower, I kind of basically said that I just can't, because the salary was then... £15,000 a year. I'm not sure what it is now. But, I mean, this was in 2003, mm. but nonetheless, like not that, you know, we haven't had exactly kind of Weimar style inflation. It was still a very difficult amount of money to live on at the time. Um, and I said, look, I just can't afford to pay my rent in London and pay mm. rent even on a, somewhere that you find me. So they meant, they let me off and I got to do my, um, my placement at the Metro <laughs> and then, <laughs> which was then in, um, in Canada water. And then I, and then I turned up early to the, the daily mail and it was fine. um, a couple of different things about working at the Mail, Right, okay, let's not beat around the bush. It is a tough working environment. Mm-hmm. Like You don't produce a paper like that by just everybody kind of swanning around and having a lovely time and dropping in at 3pm and doing a bit of work. It's, it's, it's incredibly demanding. What it did do, which I think is something that it doesn't get enough credit for, is it actually paid for you to be trained. So I'd already done a, a master's nearly. But you know in terms of actually the craft of teaching how to do stuff... They they paid for that and that was a big investment that they, they made in you at the time. Um, I think it's less so now with with training for people for online. I think they kind of mm. throw them more in at the deep end. So I think that, that that deserves some amount of credit because I think it's quite there's quite a lot of hatred towards the male from particularly from you know, the left, which I consider myself to be on. But I think there are some very exploitative practices that happen at other places that are, that. Consider themselves to be much better than the male, but mm. really use up and spit out young writers, and just you know still want them to be writing the same loads and loads of pieces a day. But because they don't have the reputation of the male, kind of get a, away with it a bit more. But you know it's um, it's not a, a friendly place to work. Um, certainly, Paul Dacre is an editor of enormous power. I think one of the very last editors who will ever have that kind of incredible power over the, the newsroom, which makes for a very muscular paper. But they also makes for a very very tough working environment.
1: And is it true about the sort of the brutality of the of the night shifts? We I've had friends who have had miserable times, you know, living nocturnal, um, you know, very depressing lives. Well, at the time I was there, I was only the paper. I mean, so the
2: the Daily Mail website was this. Is how old I am? The Daily Mail website was kind of launched in its current glorious incarnation when i was there and and everyone was very very sniffy about it because we went oh it's got full of spelling mistakes it's not (laughs) going you know because you know there was a real kind of craft about the subbing of the paper people really took pride in it and there were people who'd been there you know for 30 or 40 years you know who will want to read this thing that's sort of riddled with typos turns out you put enough pictures of kim kardashian getting out of a car no one really cares if you've misspelled the in the second sentence so um it was very interesting to see that but i only ever worked on the paper i i had a a very short secondment uh to online, but yeah. Uh, so I was working to paper deadlines, which was, a, in a way, was a very freeing job. So then the classic shift was three thirty in the afternoon until eleven thirty at night. First edition went around nine o'clock. Most of the time, the subs would then go to the pub, come back, do second edition. So again, a kind of last days of a, of a particular kind of Fleet Street life. Early deadlines on a Friday, so then everyone really did go to the pub. Um, but some of the shifts went on until three in the morning. But it, equally well, at the time I started it, we worked a, a four day week, that mm. then moved to a nine day fortnight. Um, so it, it it was you know there was a kind of payback for the amount of time that you were working. It was understood that those were difficult. Um, working hours to kind of judge with a life. And actually, I really loved it because at the time, you know, I was still living a kind of a, my late student life, which was I really enjoyed having a lion until 10 o'clock in the morning. And I did um, I didn't Open University MA in my spare time, so I would get up in the... This is what SWAT I am. I would get up in the morning and go to the British Library for a couple of hours and then go into work.
0: And did the people who work there, did they kind of identify with the, the mission or the message of the mail? or did they I mean, how, how does it work mentally? Or did, did they feel that there was a complete separation in some cases between the institution they worked for and who they were as people?
2: Um, I d- I d- Yeah, I don't, I mean, I think it's... I don't think everyone there w- subscribed to all the values of the male, but in a way, I find... It, this is going to get me into a lot of trouble, but in a way I find it quite admirable because there are a lot of people in Britain for whom the male speaks, right? And actually, journalists don't tend to belong to... They don't tend to have the same social attitudes as those people. So I think that journalism is overwhelmingly da- now dominated by graduates by people who live in the southeast you know all of these things um, and actually therefore culturally we are quite disconnected often from the large majority of people who, who read papers so you know the majority of as I think I understand it male readers are C2DEs you know they're a bit older they're much more socially conservative than most journalists but I sort of think in a way although I think the mail is often an extremely unnecessarily vicious paper in terms of the attitudes that it exposes it does reflect its readers more And therefore, it would be slightly, you know, I think there is a slight disconnect between the journalists in the newsroom and their readers, but I I think it would be sort of strange if that weren't the case because of the cultural background that most journalists come from. One of the things I think is, is really sad, you know, when I worked there, there were some incredibly... Brilliant subs, really, truly, kind of, absolutely gifted in the way they could craft a story, write a very funny headline. You know, now we don't really have funny headlines anymore because everything has to be, I, you know, Mm. written for Google, uh, so a robot understands it rather than a human finds pleasure in it. But you know, and these people that often, um, you know, left school at sixteen without maybe any qualifications, worked on a local paper and just because they were really good, worked their way up. And I remember one of them saying to me, "Well, that won't happen again. You know, your lot won't ever have to sit through twenty years of council meetings because we were the graduate trainees." So there was this kind of old journalism versus new journalism model that was going on.
1: Another thing from that period in your life that we wanted to talk about was that you um, saw a potential um, problem uh, in young journalism or for young journalists in that there wasn't this very strong um, network and you created kind of a networking event that ran for, for several years. Can you talk more about that and, and why you felt it was important to do that?
2: Yeah, I felt there used to be a kind of Fleet Street culture and it was one of the things that attracted me to being a journalist, you know, reading things like Michael Frayne's Towards the End of Morning or Scoop by Evening Water. Not that those are kind of models for what you want journalism to be like, but <laughs> they made journalism look like a quite a fun you know full of people who didn't take themselves too seriously people who were you know who, who saw the kind of essential ridiculousness of the job and that didn't happen when you were seeing someone once described the daily mail offices as looking like a third world travel agent and they really like they really do right there's just a really unpleasant carpet and these sort of weird ventilation stuff and, and, and strange internal lighting um even though it's you know in a very plush bit of london in high street kensington Um, and I just thought this is really strange my job is basically to sit in a you know miles away from a window it's most it's dark most of the time I'm working anyway this doesn't kind of you know feel like I'm part of a kind of community of journalists never mind the fact I'm not meeting people who work on other papers and remember this was 2004-5 kind of time so actually before the founding of Facebook Mm. um, and before Twitter so now all of those functions actually that's that's where the kind of that's the kind of virtual pub of journalism, right? That's where mm. I most of the time I talk to people, other people at, at completely different publications I would never see. So it's been recreated very effectively there. Like, Old Fleet Street is now Twitter, basically. Well, certainly for political journalists. But at the time, there was no way of doing that.
0: And can you talk a bit about, um, you know, what sub-editing involved as a as a process, maybe for people mm. who aren't so familiar with the term?
2: Yeah, it's very different between, in my experience, between um, tabloids uh, certainly, then. I mean, I have been. I haven't done it for really for ten years, um, properly. And and broadsheets. In broadsheets, the kind of classic model is that all the um, you know all the reporters consider themselves to be craftsmen men and women who kind of turn in these finely tuned stories, and then you know it's the sub's job is merely to sort of check them for spelling errors and put it straight into the paper. But um, at the time, as a print sub, you know, particularly for on the mail for say showbiz stories, a lot for cute animal stories for lighter stories, your job was to basically take the facts that were kind of written out in a very straight way and bring them to life. And I think whatever you think about the Daily Mail, and lots of people I know who are liberals guiltily read it all the time, because its story selection is incredible. Like, it's just always got something in it you want to read. And, like, the attention to detail is paid to everything. Everything is kind of, you know, nothing goes in there that's just sloppily shoved in. Very different to the website, where everything is kind of sloppily shoved in. Um... So that's what the subs did. They kind of created that paper. It's also weirdly, I think, slightly analogous to the Economist in the mm. sense that this, there is a, a distinctive male style to everything that runs through that paper, just DNA that is absolutely surpasses any individual writer. And actually, the writers have to kind of become maley rather than you know, and they can, and it, which can be very flattening. And I think probably you can make the same criticism of the Economist. That actually, as a read, it can almost become slightly monotonous because you're just getting the same thing there's not a you know and whereas if you read something more like maybe the guardian there is a bit more you know you have mm. people from lots of different uh, you know I would, I would wish them in some ways in the guardian people from a wider range of political backgrounds but yeah the male has got this sensibility that runs absolutely through it and it's the subs really who kind of create that because everything goes through them but
0: do they we, make stuff up
2: no no i don't know no. i mean they know <laughs> what, what how how, how, what, how would they make stuff up
0: well i don't know it's just a, it's just a fairly straightforward question
2: I mean it's a big, rich organisation, you'd have to be pretty um you'd have to be pretty confident that you weren't gonna get sued. I mean that's one of the things that is interesting about it, is it takes legal risks that other places wouldn't because it's got such a big mallet to wallop people with. Um, you know, and they they slightly fetishise their bravery over the Stephen Lawrence case, I think, as a way to deflect criticism on race issues more generally. Mm. But nonetheless that was at the time an incredibly I mean, incredibly brave call to make and an ongoing, you know, I mean, they could have been sued into the end of next week um, over that, and you know, and they and they would pour resources into stuff that they wanted to report it. So, no, I don't. I, I don't think the male's problem is factual. I think the male's problem is about the relentlessness of the political messaging that accompanies everything that they do, and actually the relentlessly aggressive way they pursue stories in terms of you know doorstepping people. And you know, Iron was there during the time that you know Amy Winehouse was collapsing, and I think the way that the tabloids behaved over that was incredibly reprehensible, right? And they just basically followed her around shouting at her. Because uh, she always made very good copy. And at the end of the night, hey Preston, there would be a photo of a drunk Amy Winehouse sort of sobbing in some street with bloodstained ballet pumps. So I think that's the bit that I would criticise more than. I don't know if you can just. F- f- flat out fiction is not something that I think I've really encountered during my career. I would, I would think about whether or not I can think of any instant but I can't off the top of my head, no. Sure.
1: We'd like to um, talk to you about sort of leaving, um, why you left, and your move to The New Statesman. So uh, I was on the features desk
2: and that was just, uh, I mean, honestly, it was, uh, yeah, uh, well, yeah, let me be really honest about it. It was a horrible job because it was, you were there from 9.30 in the morning until 9.30 p.m. every day, five Mm. days a week. um, Because there was quite a high staff turnover at the time I was there and I was working one in three, one in four Sundays. Um,
1: So it just took up every you know moment of of your waking life so were you, were you compensated for that you know for that you know huge amount of, of work and long hours in, in in pay at all or was mm, it still very badly I paid, was
2: paid no, i know i no. i was paid very well for i mean i was in my mid 20s at that point mm-hmm. i was earning as much as you know any of my friends probably um more uh, apart from people who worked in the city or crazy things like that no it was it was it was a a, a very good solid job like above the London average pay, like, and, and I was only, what, 26 or 7, but I did feel like I sort of inhaled on a Monday morning, like, at 9.30 and then to the office, and then I only exhaled on a Friday evening at kind of 8pm when we'd sent the paper, you know, you just couldn't do anything in the evening, you couldn't see any friends mm. in the evening. It wasn't like, you know, because subbing had had at least been kind of nights off, but you basically spent Saturday just kind of, you know, zoning out and, and recovering. If you wanted to have dinner with anybody, you know, you had to have dinner at 10, 10.30 mm. at night, it was... It was and You
0: mentioned in that um, Medium piece that, that you sent us that it was kind of the relentlessness, not just of the pressure, but of having to have four more ideas the next day, like mm. the kind of bang, bang, bang. Which really, yeah. a creative yeah. exhaustion.
2: Yeah, no, definitely. And also, because the thing I think about now, because I write a lot now and I'm writing a weekly column, and people, everyone thinks that they can write a weekly column, and most people can write a weekly column. Can you write the second weekly column, the third weekly, column, like the fourth weekly column? It is a fundamentally really creatively exhausting I'm not, I'm not comparing it to going down a mine or anything but you know what I mean it is a lot harder than people think because actually you've just got to have more and more ideas so the mail was kind of good training for that and also about not being precious about the idea that this is my you know my mastermind because you just have to throw things into mm. the bucket and kind of um, see what sticks and also about not being lazy I remember <laughs> I remember they bought Patrick Barkham, a Guardian writer, who wrote a book about butterflies. He, I think it was like, there are 50 butterflies in Britain, right? 50 species of butterfly. And he tried to do a quest to see every single one. So they bought this. What does the male decide to do, because it's the male, to run it on a Saturday with every single species of butterfly as a border around the page? And we had to label them all and check that they were all different. And then we got the male and female of each one and I sat there for like three hours checking, looking at these bloody butterflies (laughs) that were virtually identical going right that's a marsh fritillary, right that's a lesser tail, and I just thought this is only the mail I remember when I did a placement at the Times before I even started the mail where there was a graphic of every British soldier who'd been killed in Iraq this Mm. would have have been when I was at the Times on a scholarship I think and the mail had gone and found a photo of everybody and their paper had everyone and the picture desk had done all that amount of research, Mm. and that was the thing that that I saw that everyone else kind of admired um, about the Mail. I remember I was doing a placement at the Observer, and one of the editors there said, "You know, because I, I, I was agonised, because I've always been quite left-wing about whether or not I should go and work on the Mail." And she said, "You know, the thing is, they like what doesn't kill you will make you stronger. Mm. Like they will, you know, you won't take any shortcuts. It's not a place where you're allowed to be lazy." Um, but the reason I, I say about being honest about it was that that, and I think this is an experience lots of people have in journalism. And people don't want to talk about. It is that moving there from there to here I experienced as I was it was a huge relief um but I also experienced it as a sense of personal failure that I couldn't hack it
1: mm.
2: and some part of me thought this was incredible like i had been on one of those sort of SAS are you tough enough programs and I'd pulled out over at the sort of third 15 mile hike and now I watch those programs and I'm like just leave you're having a terrible time <laughs> you know you've got like dysentery and your foot's falling off just leave but now I can understand the impulse that of, that you feel That there's a big challenge that you've been presented Mm. with but now I look at those people and I think actually it's a kind of Stockholm syndrome particularly when you're paid really really well you've got a certain lifestyle that you're used to and then you will like there's a lot that you will put up with in terms of workplace culture in terms of hours in terms of whatever because actually you're you're sort of scared about what life would be like on the outside and
1: you've also bought into the the myth
2: yeah, not so much that's... that's I'm, not, there's, I'm not sure there's a lot of people there who are thinking that they're kind of, you know, as they lay out a spread about... Not the a, myth of the, kind the mayor, of I mean, but
1: I mean, the myth of, of that kind of Fleet Street way of life yeah, and of working hard and macho. being tough enough.
2: I mean, it's a very, very macho kind of place. I think that's the thing that's mm. really noticeable. I'm sure you know, it has, has always had a certain number of female executives, but as a kind of culture, there were a lot of men there whose wives didn't work. Mm.
0: Um, Have you read Alex Starrett's novel The Beast?
2: No, but he was also a, a sub on the Mail. So lots of people I know who were subs kind of were like, yeah, he, we we always knew he was sort of writing a novel in his spare time.
0: It's a, a novel we should say based on a newspaper that you know its origins couldn't possibly be stated. But you know, Alex was a sub of the Mail, and it is an interesting examination of a. Yeah, culture. I
2: must I must read it, but I don't know whether or not I've just I bought that um, Adrian Anderson's book Mailmen. That's all about the history of the Daily Mail. And I mm. started sort of flicking through it, and I sort of thought.
1: Why this am I doing really, this myself? This like you
2: know, I just—I don't think anyone who was in the you know Korean War read a lot of stuff about the Korean War afterwards. I know that's a terrible comparison <laughs> to make, but I just thought, no, I—I I lived through this, and quite a lot of it was quite unpleasant. I don't think I really want to live through it again. Thank
1: well, you. Well, let's not set any further. Could you um, talk about your move here and what it—you know—your your start of your of your time here?
2: Yeah, you, the thing that's really fascinating is so, you know, if, the, if, there's a, if there was a feature on the the mail, and maybe it was your commission, then you'd have kind of first crack at writing the headline on it, and then a load of. Ex, ex, would come in and all rewrite it, and then usually at about 9, 10 p.m. Paul Dacre would come along, and then he would rewrite it to what you had originally done. And then you just think, why? If I, I could have been home so much <laughs> longer ago. um And then I remember my my second week here, Jason, our editor. I sort of said to him, "This headline wouldn't it be better as this?" And he went, "Oh yeah, just yeah, just just change that then." And I kind of went, "Hang on a minute, where are the other like nineteen people who are all going to kind of put their finger in this pie?" And because it's such a small team, the thing I would say when and hiring how, people how big for, is the team so i think there's 25 of us mm-hmm. i mean it's complicated because we have quite a few people who work part-time which is really nice because it means that there are lots of um parents of young kids in the office and they're able to make it work so erica our design director works two days a week jerry our um, creative editor works four days a week tom uh, who's now a books and features editor had um last year the year before he took three months of um parental leave so mm. that's one of the things that's quite nice about working on a weekly magazine is it has the ability to have those slightly more kind of flexible structures um and then yeah there's there's a, a web team as well we're mediumly integrated we're not fully into because there are specific jobs that have to be just done for print mm. but an only um print but yeah the thing i always say to people when recruiting here is um you know the, the joy of working the new Statesman is that you can do everything, anything the sort of downside to that is you have to do everything right you can't be somebody who's just an incredible specialist Mm. who's like this sort of perfectly honed sort of specialist knife that only, you know, does this thing you have to be a kind of Swiss army knife, I guess.
0: Mm. And what, given that point, what are the, the things that you do? All of them. <laughs> All of the
2: things that I do, right okay. List <laughs> <let's, laughs> them. Right, let's, um, so uh, yeah, at the moment I'm only working two days a week because I'm writing a, um, a book, but normally my, my duty, so Monday and Tuesday are our production days, so we go to press every night uh, every week at, on, on a Tuesday night and then it's out on newsstands on Thursday in London and Friday in the rest of the country so Monday and Tuesday, I'm at my desk we have an editorial meeting on a Monday morning in which we talk about what's going to be in the issue we we do a lot of forward planning in advance obviously but then there is a kind of complete step back on Monday morning about hang on a minute is this the right cover story Mm. Um, is there anything we need to pick up in the columns all that kind of stuff so Monday I'll be editing columns that come in after the weekend talking to Erica about the cover so at the moment we're going through we've, we've built made a real effort in the last couple of years to build up a bank of illustrators because finding a cover star for us has been quite hard mm. and the most successful magazine in the current affairs market is private eye And one of the things that's really nice about them is they do a joke on the cover every week and actually we've had quite a lot of success with uh, Andre Carrillo who does our caricatures now you have to be so careful of if you're running a current affairs magazine that you don't want people to feel this is homework mm. uh, you want to promise that you know yes it's quite educational it's very informative but it is actually also pleasurable to read and it will have different tones in it and light and shade so that's one bit of my job obviously I write for the magazine as well one of the things I particularly enjoy doing is longer long form pieces particularly profile Mm -hmm. writing I have a weekly column um, I do a bit of reviewing, book reviews, theatre reviews occasionally from time to time. And then, yeah, at the moment, I'm also do, I am also do broadcast around it, so I will do the pay-per-view on Andrew Marr's show. Um, uh, I've got a, an essay going out on Radio 4 for their word-of-mouth series, so I do some of that kind of public-facing stuff. I do a bit of the strategy stuff, not very much. We're launching a paywall soon, so I haven't been massively involved in that, but I've kind of kept my eye on it. Uh and then what else ready? Oh and I'm writing a book. Yeah, that mean that keeps me busy. <laughs> and the,
0: the editor himself, is he how hands-on is he at a place like this? Is he sort of rolling up his sleeves and, and doing those tasks as well is, is he taking a sort of more strategic direction while you run the place day to day
2: no he's uh, we don't have a, a publisher or managing editor so he does a lot of those functions so he does yeah he's tied up a lot with that kind of um, the business side of it and business development but no he um his his interests particularly are philosophy he's a philosophy graduate and also um, world affairs and he's been really instrumental in bringing in writers like um, shiraz maher and john Bu both out of king's college london And his sort of particular expertise and interest is in either about big political ideas or big um, geopolitics ideas. We've been very strong on Syria, for example, on charting the kind of rise of ISIS and then the kind of complications that arose from from that, which is, you know, I'm interested in that kind of stuff, but it's not my particular passion. So, you know, what our interests are are quite complementary in that sense. And then the other senior editor is, is Tom, who now works across books and features, and he comes from a literary background. So he's very much interested in ideas and things that are kind of coming out of um, fiction and non-fiction so we've got a kind of we've got a good spread ac- across us in terms of the things that we're interested in and that means that we all tend to edit our own writers that we've kind of brought in mm-hmm. um, and we all tend to edit around the things that are our particular specialism you know I wouldn't feel massively confident editing four thousand words on uh, yeah on on what's happening in in, in Syria it's not my particular you know, I mean, you should, as an editor, be able to deal with anything because you just go a bit slower and you check everything a lot better. But in terms of actually being able to capture, well, hang on, what's the what's the kernel of this piece? What's the new thing that I'm finding mm. out here? You know, I, my my specialisms are more about things like tech, for example, um, and yeah, obviously feminism is a big interest of mine, um, and 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 cultural
1: stuff more broadly. I think we're going to return to the kind of the nuts and bolts of commissioning and editing a little bit later, but could we just zoom out for a second and talk about? Um, if do you have like a sort of a thumbnail um, sketch version of the New Statesman and the role it performs sort of in the ecosystem of of British um, journalism?
2: Oh yeah, okay, that's a that's a dangerous question. Um, so it was founded in 1913 by the Fabians, by um, Beatrice and Sydney Webb. Um, and published some really interesting stuff early on both around poverty uh, it published Virginia Woolf, it published uh, Rebecca West, it uh, published a terrible interview by HG Wells with Stalin in which he said, oh how's Stalin, there's a great one He says Stalin it seems to me, that, to me that I'm more to the left than you or something like that. <laughs> it was It's a kind of terrible model of a really incredibly fawning political interview which we republished for our centenary. So um, Jason's vision of it has always been that one of the, pro- the the statesman is least good when it is in the you know it's very closely aligned to the Labour Party, or very doctrinaire about being on the left. He was always wanted it to be sceptical and plural and independent. and that's been, yeah you know, that is a challenge now when there is a lot of pressure from the left to be well, as they say, roll in behind Corbyn. And the argument I always make is I think Peter Wilby's editorship of the Statesman was characterized by the fact that he did not go along with the Iraq War, which was precisely the correct decision to make and there was a lot of pressure on on the magazine particularly you know what we've ever seen at the time it was seen as labour's house journal or the magazine of all well is what is what people call us when they're trying to be nice about us um that you know that you would kind of well hang on, this is the first labour government we've had in ages you know you should be behind them and he resisted that And I think the same pressure is there now and the same resistance is that we're not there. We're there to articulate a set of principles and measure each politician against them rather than to be tribal in in any way. So that's where I see it. So we usually say left leaning rather than it's a left wing magazine because it's it's open to other voices from other bits of the political spectrum. But it does still have that identity that comes out of Fabianism and what that meant. But that's a very complicated legacy in itself. I mean, mm. like a lot of other people on the left in the twenties, the webs were eugenicists. I mean, there are some, some dark things in almost the history of almost every publication to to reckon with. But that's yeah, but that's where it is now. And it's a small magazine in terms of circulation. I think our headline circulation is around thirty thousand. Um, that depends on you know fluctuations in in newsstand. Um, but you know, the things that are difficult for us are about display advertising, and that's something that everybody mm. in the, across the whole industry has found quite difficult, particularly over the last couple of years, it's been a real chill. um We're making a lot of money from internet advertising, but the feeling has always been my strong advocacy has always been that you should just, you know, thank you, say thank you, and bank that now, but also try and really diversify your revenue as much as you possibly can, which is why we're. We're launching a paywall, which you know only a small fraction of the r- number of readers will ever meet because it's designed to be after four articles that you have to pay. But it will mean that people who do use us all the time end up paying, which I think is actually, on principle, is something that I think is really important. Mm. I think it's really interesting. You know, the Guardian is doing very well out of membership, but also about donation. Like even they won't say, you know, I don't, I, you know they, they, there's still a kind of ideological resistance to the idea of a paywall, but not now to the idea of. That people mm. that, need know, to pay. That need to, pay. yeah. People need to pay, not just advertisers need to pay. And I would always much rather that our readers paid more, and that we shifted that balance, um, because then that's those are then if those are the people who are paying your wages, then ultimately you can't afford to piss them off. Mm. They're the most important people, and that's not an argument. You know, you just have to make on ethical grounds. It then becomes a commercially viable argument too.
0: Just following on from those points you said about, you know, the, the both the process of editing and writing within an ideological framework, and I think this would apply equally to you know, publication of The Spectator on the other side of the divide. How, If you're you're kind of working in the, I suppose, the would it be fair to say the two big ideological areas you're working in would be kind of, broadly speaking, left-wing politics in the magazine and feminism in some mm. of your own interests. How does that shape the decision-making process in terms of what, you know, what you're putting in? I suppose the, the classic example that springs to mind is, didn't during the Spanish Civil War the New Statesman spike to peace that Orwell ran criticising Republican excesses you know yeah and that that always seems to me to be an example of of some of the potentially quite difficult or dangerous pitfalls you can get into where you are a publication with a political stance so how do you go about walking that line as it were and i suppose yeah particularly with the Corbynite piece and so forth as well
2: yeah i think there's a i think it's really interesting those discussions about because there's a big sort of thing about people getting spiked and, and, and sometimes pieces deserve to be spiked i was thinking at the weekend about remember Julie Birchell's terrible article she wrote about transgender people for the Observer which she wrote as, off the back of defending Suzanne Moore for a piece that she wrote for us and it was just full of gratuitous insults and eventually they wiped that from the internet like they wiped it off the Observer website which was a yeah, borderline the correct decision to do but really at someone at some point should have said what, what is what is the editorial outcome of publishing a load of gratuitous insults about a marginalised group? It's not advancing the conversation, it's not making a good faith argument about anything, right? It's just, it's just there to be mean for the sake of it. So I think it's very easy. I think there are some people on the left who see any kind of editorial intervention as being kind of censorship. And it's needlessly self-dramatising because... Editing is nothing but censorship, right? You're constantly deciding who you're not going to publish, what you know, how you're going to With which choice, right? Yeah, which bit you're going to cut. Like it's not like there. There is no magazine in history that just says to every everyone in the world send us stuff and we will publish everything that you want to write. That's sort, that's YouTube comments, isn't it? Um, and and therefore they're quite grisly as a as a result. So, um, so I think that what we try and do is work out where the limits are of. For example, what things are hate speech, What things are gratuitously offensive to no purpose, what things are tough and people might find them incendiary, but we think there is a genuine point that is being made there in good faith. And I think that's one of the things that I always think of when we're publishing something that I feel is going to get us into trouble is... Is this a is this true is this something that needs to be said and is it being said in good faith to advance a cause you know or advance a principle that I believe in um, and I think what happens sometimes is that you know the pieces that you you don't want to be able to stand up and defend would be pieces that are just need lip there's someone just I think quite, my colleague Stephen described once' just like a man walking to a room and dropping his trousers you know those pieces where they're just there's no point to them other than just to be like are you triggered libs or whatever it turns out to be they don't actually add anything to the conversation apart from petrol um so i think I, f- I would you know i i would always defend us publishing stuff that people find really challenging within those limits
1: is um you know, what role does diversity um in a newsroom um play into this because obviously what is offensive can change dramatically with with who's doing the judging
2: yeah and the media as a whole is is really undiverse but um, I've been thinking a lot about this recently because I got into trouble a while ago. Some A writer on the internet said, oh, I criticised the Shadow Cabinet, which at the time didn't have very much ethnic minority representation. And someone said, well, how much ethnic minority representation does the New Statesman have? And I said, based on the figures at the time, it was 20% BME. And they said, so it would be about how many in senior roles. And, and I said, well, at the time, our chief sub-editor was, um, was a black woman. And this person kind of kept coming back at me. And I said, well, look, and I think there is a problem... That needs to be addressed. And actually, but actually looking at the headline figures only gets you so far because where the problem is, 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 is at entry level. Um, and actually if I, you know, we put out an advert for a, a senior editor role or for a political correspondent, then particularly in politics, those applicants will be overwhelmingly male and they will be overwhelmingly white. They will be overwhelmingly Oxbridge graduates, right? So actually just, you, you know, by the time you get to that point, you've, the, the problem is already mm. incredibly entrenched. So what I wanted to do, and, and we've run for several years, is um, funded by the Wellcome Foundation, is a programme for BME aspiring science journalists, because I think what actually you really need to do is just give more people the opportunities at, at the start, um, so that then actually your applicants look much more like the population at, at large, um, because it's very hard 20 or 30 years in someone's career to be able to, to, to fix that problem. For, for women particularly, as I say, one of the things that's nice about working on a weekly is that on print that they were able to be slightly flexible about about working hours which i think is very helpful um, but you know i th- look around the media i do feel there's a huge attrition of women at senior levels i think most journalism courses probably are now majority female what they certainly were when i was at city it was a majority of women and then you know they're there i have absolutely no problem recruiting women in their 20s women in their 30s and 40s mm. more difficult because they tend to move sideways either into pr which is just much more stable and more regular income or into freelance writing um, and I'm deputy chair of Women in Journalism and this kind of conversation came up a among a group of senior editors and the conversation basically came to the fact that no you cannot have it all and actually almost every woman in the, in that room who was very senior and had children had done something like either their husband had given up work or they had gone to be a foreign correspondent for a while or they had hired in an enormous amount of help which they could only afford because of the sal- salary was quite high. Um, so I think that you know, in terms of gender, the problems are really deeply structural and related to care work, mm. and also related to the insecurity of it as a career and the hours. And you know, particularly being a reporter, you know, you might be asked to kind of go off and at seven o'clock at night to Manchester if there's been a terror attack or something like that. Well, that's just fundamentally very hard to do if you've got well, if you're, you know if you've got a two year old, or if you're looking after an elderly parent. So, yeah, I I I think that diversity is an enormous problem, but my problem is that whether or not it's being fixed. So I, I was thinking about, writing about this, and I think if you tell the whether or not a diversity scheme is working by whether or not it costs any money, um, I think that's the point, isn't it? Like, you can just, you can say all the sort of warm words you want about trying to bring other people on, but are you actually spending any money on it? Mm. And that's what I felt that the welcome scheme was really important, because that was paid at London living wage, and that was giving people who might not, particularly because they were from science um, backgrounds, giving people who wouldn't otherwise maybe have looked at journalism or thought that they could, you know, risk this as a career uh, and uh, an entry route into it and i'm very proud that several of the people who did that now are working in in journalism
0: kind of moving backwards but also tying in some ways to the same theme where do you see the the place of reporting and particularly the you know longer reported pieces in a in a magazine in a political magazine and i suppose the extension of that is you know it you were talking earlier about you know that there's some of the tensions between editorial decisions and and the stance of the magazine with with regard to i suppose opinion-led pieces but what i'm always i feel another tension what i feel the, the idea of reporting is you go out and you sort of test your preconceptions against the world. And if the world says they're wrong, you mm. acknowledge they're wrong. You know. So how does that fit, commissioning and editing, that kind of thing, with uh, the magazine again?
2: Yeah, I mean, I don't think there's a conflict to that at all, because you have to go where the reporting takes you. And actually, I find, I don't know about you guys, but when you're interviewing somebody, particularly somebody who's been involved in big controversies, it's best to just put it to them flat out, right? Which is, hey, look... The criticism of you is x like what is your response to that you're just not trying to kind of tiptoe around it but you know we've done some very challenging reporting i was just thinking um because of all this stuff about the telford child sexual exploitation stuff Mm. daniel trilling who was an assistant editor here is now editor of the new humanist magazine did a piece from i'm going to get it wrong about whether it was it was rochdale rather than rotherham um and and really prodded into some of that stuff about the nighttime economy about the about race and class that was really difficult in that but you've just got to just listen to what people are telling you and and that's what that's the only point of reporting isn't it that that it you might actually end up with um you know we coming to completely different conclusions than the ones that you you went in with and i don't think we'd have any problem publishing that because you don't commission someone particularly to do something like that which you have to invest a lot of time mm. in unless you absolutely trust them as a reporter you trust that they are talking to all the people that they say they are that they are presenting the situation accurately so whatever they see on the ground sorry if it doesn't agree with what you thought was you know from your lofty perch in EC4, but you know you just that's what you print.
0: Can it be challenging to get you know younger writers who've come up churning a lot of stuff for the web um, or through a kind of hot takes economy that's very opinion led? Can it be challenging as an editor to get them to stretch their legs in in that kind of direction with longer reported
2: pieces? Yeah, because no one's born knowing how to write a four thousand word feature, and it's a very different discipline to being able to yeah like even writing a thousand word column, um, and it's not one that everybody enjoys the problem with it is it's really time consuming and i think you know it comes back everything comes back to money ultimately and we have the luxury here of a magazine that we charge a reasonable amount of money for that we have subscriptions that we charge a reasonable amount of money for um you know we can't do that kind of stuff online because the the overheads are, are just are just different and that's what does really worry me that's why i'm so happy that the ft's paywall has worked out really well mm. the economist has worked out really well because there are you know the lrb is is doing very well um, and private eye is doing very well and it doesn't do long reads but it does proper you know it will send someone to every six weeks of that court case um, because those functions are really I think really and, and actually talking about court reporting the, the lack of coverage of local court cases now is very very worrying so the BBC's obviously the kind of you think will do that kind of bread and butter stuff but with local papers going bust and those used to be a big source of stories for, for the nationals too and a, a really useful kind of civic function that that journalism used to have that's kind of dying out but I, there is no way if, if we were purely an online-only organisation, we would not be able to make the economics of long-form reporting work, because you just you know you just the CPM um, on advertising is just not enough to support that. So it's something that's helped by us doing a print magazine, and it's one of the reasons why we want to do a paywall because that's the kind of journalism we want to do. Not yeah. I just, you know, I'm and I, 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 I am someone with extremely strong opinions, and sometimes I will write a, what you, yeah, like a hot, it is, yeah, it is a hot take. It's like sometimes my takes are extremely hot, but you kind of, that's not done for effect, and I'm not doing nine of them a day because I've been asked to, on, you know, and that's the only way to make, to make money. And I think there is a real worry I have about young journalists who come in, and particularly the only way that they can, so lots of young journalists now, I think, really want to be opinion economists in the way that my generation all wanted to be foreign correspondents that was the kind of glamorous sexy thing that you've got a lot of love for um, and the way to do that really is to write um, again this is I'm stealing this from Stephen Bush my, why I as an X think Y about Z and I think that that can become quite restrictive to people Uh, every woman I know who writes about feminism worries a lot about whether or not they're kind of stereotyping themselves or it's you know they're going to be seen as some way limited or obsessive or narrow and I kind of go well you know they have transport correspondence like this is a you know feminism really encompasses like the issues of half of the population so it's not a kind of niche specialism at all but um I think that you end up yeah if you don't bring on reporters and you end up people kind of churning stuff out then there is a temptation to turn in those very identity-led pieces. Mm. And I've seen, I I, um, I think there was, I can't remember if it was Slate or something, I called it the first-person industrial complex. And, yeah, yeah, and sure. that's sort of faded away a bit now, I think, because so Facebook and Google have taken so much advertising money. But, you know, I just think when you see 24-year-olds writing about the fact that they've slept with their father or they've found a you know cat's hairball in their vagina, you think in 10 years' time when you want to write about covering parliament or something like what's your job after mm. that you know where does it go what skills have you acquired yeah you know and i don't disrespect anybody who needs to pay their rent but as an industry that is that does feel very exploitative
1: i think we're uh, we're vaguely running out of time and we are going to move back on to hot takes and talk yeah. about um, your own um writing but before we move just on the subjects of of um economics and paying writers um the new statesman has had a reputation for not um paying people in the past i don't know
2: why it's got this because this i mean this is you know four or five years ago now i mean Mm. it's sort of fascinating to me and actually this it it was the same conversation about interns there was a big two hour about interns for a really long time ago and we've had a policy instituted during my reign so post 2012 of we don't we pay or we only have interns through structured schemes so we have the Welcome Fellowship which we've now done for sorry, scholarship which we've now run for three or four years. We work with the Social Mobility Foundation and we work with our owners foundation, the Danson Foundation, on that. So I mean I think that um, now I get people begging me for work experience who were really happy to work on paid. And and I kind of think I would never have wanted to because the way the work experience works, right, is either you have your people in for a week, and actually they're a dr- and they're a net drain on your resources because you need to teach them how to use computer mm. systems, you need to show them the lure, you need to you know, whatever, and mostly they want to kind of write blogs, which you then if they do that, you have to sort of spend a lot of time editing and working them and showing them through drafts, and so actually they get a lot more. It's essentially teaching time really mm-hmm. that but taking someone away from their job or you do the old model which was definitely an operation when i was a young journalist of people who would be unpaid interns for like 11 months yeah and And at that point then then it's really tipped right and then the organization is getting a lot more out of them Mm -hmm. than they're getting out of it and it's narrowing journalism down to people essentially whose parents live in london so they can stay in their spare room or who are just incredibly wealthy um so yeah we don't have unpaid internships and we uh, we pay we pay for all our pieces and have done that for years it's but it's really fascinating. What about the
0: the administration to pay? I mean again so I'm I kind of did my first long form pieces for the New Statesman yeah. years ago and was you know remain grateful for the opportunity that I had to do that but I ha- we were talking about it beforehand. I think you know getting paid and this wasn't you know in recent years but getting getting paid by the New Statesman was the, I mean I think you know the most onerous experience I've had with any publication <laughs> ever in my entire life <laughs> on two continents. Right. Yeah. I'm very, very sorry about um, that.
2: Um, I think it's when you're a small organisation, and we are part of a bigger organisation. It's just we just the, the infrastructure is just not as as robust as it is somewhere that's, you know, um, you know. I, my favourite freelance commissions are from the BBC, right? Because although they just send you endless amounts of paper, they send you like two lots of paperwork for the same thing, but they pay you instantly on time because it's a massive, massive organisation, and it has always been the case that smaller publications have been a lot more dragging their feet on it, it as an editor it's incredibly frustrating if, if, if there's some kind of hold up often because there's only one person who can sign off payments and that's the kind of thing that holds it up um, but yeah I, it's one of the things that is ultimately out of the control of editorial I, it's, it's not Although, I mean it
0: seems and again this is not in the current regime but I remember you know when you're like calling for the 15th time to chase your mm. thing it did seem again there was a sort of element of living your values you know this, this is a publication that is, is of the left and is sort of preaching about workers rights and stuff like that to to not pay people is it struck me as shabby you know to not have that basic investment in a proper functioning system for people who are riding freelance now that may have changed but again it seemed you know that this sort of weird irony that like play you know places that preach brutal free market fundamentalism have like pay pay payroll markets that function like gleaming machines and you know the traditional uh, publication of the left like fuck you you know
2: yeah yeah no I, I, I take your point but it's also the fact that you know every whether or not you've got kind of you've got have limited power and control right is that you know there are it's there. There are lots of things that I can do, and I can lean on the accounts department if that, would, that was something that came up. But ultimately, it's not my decision, and and that's whose that's, decision
0: is it? Well,
2: that's it's the it's the commercial side of the company, which is not the editorial side of the company, and that's got its advantages and disadvantages. You know, in the same sense that we don't take any, you know, we're never pressured into taking adverts that we don't want to take, for example. But it means that you you know they they operate and they 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 run the, themselves like a small business.
1: Mm. Moving on to some of the things that you sent us to read and we'll link to them in the show notes. I really enjoyed your um, profile of Sue um, Black. Black. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about why you chose um, to write about her, you know, just walk us through the story a little bit and talk about some of the struggles perhaps in, in structure and, and that kind of, um, of writing.
2: Yeah, let me try and remember what the first inri- original inspiration for that piece was. I think it was from the fact that she did maybe The Life Scientific with Jamal Khalili on Radio 4 and she talked about her career. And I was really struck by the fact that she had... um she both did lots of stuff about identification of, of dead people. Um, she worked in uh, po- former Yugoslavia, identifying victims of war crimes, um, and there were kind of snipers in the hills and landmines. But then the place.
0: there's the whole paedophile, like the live people do as well. And right? then
2: she now she identifies, yeah. And they have the human identification unit at Dundee, in which they look for, um, you know, strange malformations in your nails or something like that, that you know, unusual th- markings or moles or whatever it might be, that they can look at, you know, often. Abuse and child abuse images where people are very careful to crop their faces out to find mm. other identifying marks and they look to whether or not the veins on the back of your hand for example are um, as distinctive as a fingerprint because what happens is they are affected by the um, the environment in the uterus right so you, everyone has a kind of basic grid for how their body is laid out but there are all your moles and freckles and how your skin distributes themselves all of that happens in uterus so they're not even identical in identical twins um, so that's the kind of stuff that they, they look at um, but I try and select people who I think have got an interesting story and I think can talk interestingly about it. Those mm. are the two halves of that. So I went up to Dundee, and Sue was very and gave me several hours, showed me around her morgue, showed me someone who was dead, being pumped full of um, the new... They have a new embalming fluid that's much better than formaldehyde. What does a morgue smell like? Nothing, like nothing. That was a really fascinating thing about it. I thought it would smell antiseptic, but they it, don't. It is named after crime writers, right? Really. Yeah, they do. They have the Val McDermid uh, morgue, and then they have the... Actually, they have the Jack Reacher... Not the child morgue because it was it couldn't be called the yeah the child um, mortuary um, but it, no they have a special air conditioning that sucks down rather than upwards, so you have yeah you have a room full of dead people and sheets and then it doesn't smell of anything it's kind of fascinating, um, but I you know I, I just thought she had a phenomenal story to tell and is such so as far as I can tell completely unaffected by it, and you know has children herself um, who are now grown up but but was looking at all these images of incredible cruelty and pain.
1: I um, read, like, uh, Simon, your, you had this discussion with, with Medium about this particular piece, and one of the things I really liked, cause I thought it was actually a great piece of advice, was how you began writing and stitched this piece together. Could you reiterate that?
2: So I couldn't find the intro to it for a really long time, so now when I'm writing long form, what I try and do is write it in slices or vignettes, and think of it more like um, a novel or a screenplay, and try and kind of basically think of it like a, like a string of pearls and you're just trying to thread each pearl onto it and then you build up and then at the end of it, you've got a necklace. So, you know, the classic way to do a profile is very, very formulaic. I'm sure we've all done it, um, which is you start in the middle of something. So it's mm-hmm. kind of like, oh God, I never realized, You know, the first time I realized that I had three legs was on Tuesday, says blah, blah, <laughs> blah, And then you do a sort of top bit and then you kind of go born in 1967, blah, 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 mm. blah, and then you go back and do the bio and then kind of go back into it. Um, and I thought, well, you've got a bit more time to, you know, tell the story out over in, in these luxurious magazine pages. So I'm going to try a couple of different ways of, of writing this. So um, Ollie Franklin, once who did that interview, who's uh, recently a commissioning editor at Wired, said, I, his, the thing he picked up about that is I don't have direct quotes, and I, th- you know, for quite a long time, and it's told through her voice. So mm. it's always told based around things that she told me, but I put them into indirect speech. And I think that's something that you have to have a certain amount of confidence to do and also a luxury to do, because if you're doing a Saturday newspaper interview, and I've done them too, um, what they want is lots of quotes so they can have a, a quote headline, and they actually ideally want a news to of somebody. So, you know, the, I'm thinking of The Guardian had a Christopher Eccleston interview that was Chris Christopher I've been blacklisted by the BBC after Doctor Who. And, you know, therefore the, there is a premium on putting everything in quotation marks, but actually it's not necessarily the most compact way mm. to tell a story. And I did a couple of pieces for Neiman Reports, which is a US journalism magazine, and they were militant about only letting you let have quotes for stuff that added value, right? You weren't allowed just to deliver facts through the medium of quotes, which I thought was a really big difference, but actually it really helped my my writing because it makes you tell things in a much more novelistic way and then what you do is you use quotes because you want that person's voice particularly and uh so the first quote from her is because she's incredibly beautifully red-headed um mm. she talks about you know i tan as well as a snowball and that's the first time you get a quote from her and that's something that i would you know that's just her incredibly vivid language that you just get much better in, in direct quotes but mm. not to stuff everything full of direct speech just because it's kind of adds out the word count.
0: How much writing are you able to do with the commitments for your other job, of, of, say pieces of that scale?
2: Yeah, not as much as I would like. I think last year I did three profiles and a couple of other long pieces. Um, so I profiled the theatre director, Robert Icke. I profiled the playwright, James Graham. I profiled a guy who blows stuff up in a quarry. He runs a, a counter um, explosives. um business called Sydney Oldford and then I wrote a long piece of Hamilton but I'm sure there was one at, the be- <laughs> one at the beginning of the year but yeah that you know one every two months would be quite and
0: again without the sort of bashing the money drum too hard but we always try and ask about it if you're freelancing for the new statesman for that kind of piece what can you expect to be paid
2: um you can expect well at, at not bad rates actually that's the thing I was, it's been really interesting to see to me is that um you know for a column you know um 300 pounds would be a kind of normal standard rate for that and that i used to think when i started that was less than other people getting in other places but actually rates have fallen and i've talked to freelancers in other places um you know we and we do invest more in other pieces than that um for reported pieces uh, and we've had funding as well we work with the pulitzer foundation for crisis reporting to fund um reporting in zimbabwe for example so we do pay people more than 30p a word but that's a not you know that's a kind of Reasonable level of, of fee. So
0: for that, for a sort of, of a a word piece. Of, what no, you probably mean?
2: have you probably have more than that. But that would be a kind of thing. And some of the people who would write that would be on contract anyway, so it would work out as more. Okay. Um, but it's you know it is what it is, and we have we have you know we have put serious investment in that. But I think now when I write for other places they do not pay me a lot more than i get here which i think is 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 interesting and different well, maybe i'm just terrible i think at it's uh, you know,
0: this is again not at all unique to you but i think when we've spoken to other editors in this field in the uk yeah they're they're asking people to write ambitious long form fiction for that amount sorry non fiction for that amount um which is it's a fraction of what the americans pay right oh, yeah, and again yeah. obviously there's very basic economic realities like differences in circulation and stuff like that but i often find in the discussion of like why we don't have that tradition here and things the, the board financial factor no
2: i've written some stuff in the u.s and got a dollar a word and you kind of go <laughs> what i'm sorry you want to pay me how much um and there are places that pay um more than us but i know very very senior feature writers in the uk you know who, who said that oh, well i won't work for less than 50p a word but you know i'm finding that really difficult to kind of argue now and um, you know, and that's a, a, about a, a, a rate of money that we might pay people. And I can see that there is a problem, which is, and I think it's about the way that the U.S. doesn't really have a kind of single, one um, comprehensive newspaper. That you know, the New York Times has got a massive circulation, obviously, but it's very much situated in a particular place. It's not national newspaper in quite the same way that we have it. So there are all these magazines that kind of are truly kind of pan American and therefore I can see why and there's the thing they're selling themselves on because they're monthlies or whatever mm. it might be is long-form reporting yeah. whereas the primary dominant form of news here and, and, and print journalism here is, is the newspapers and because they're daily and they've got websites attached then they can do opinion a lot easier you know try and write a column for a monthly magazine <laughs> it's like what will still be in date in six months time and um, so, you know, here I think the people who get paid really whacking salaries often are op ed columnists. They're the mm-hmm. things that you sell the paper on, right? You want to read the paper for Owen Jones or Charles Moore or whoever it might be. Um, whereas. Or indeed, Polly Vernon. Uh, which is the next piece we wanted to ask about. Oh, right, okay. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, it's the embarrassed Helen Lewis Oh, <laughs> it's fine, no. it's fine. Um, but, yeah, so I think that's the thing, is that I think in terms of the financial reward, we have skewed ours towards op-ed because that's what a lot of people want to do. It's quite glamorous. It seems to be quite easy. And also it's where the kind of big financial rewards
1: are.
0: I'll, yeah. I'll let Cassia pose the next question.
1: <laughs> yes. Why are you so mean? Oh, sorry. <laughs> no, no, no. Um, That's so what you're going to ask me, I'm presuming. <laughs> uh, so yes, we wanted to ask about your review of Hot um, Feminist. And perhaps you could tell us a little bit about your um, your opinion of, of the piece and and what you what you thought of the book.
2: So the Guardian asked me to review, and it was in the kind of post-Catlin runway where every woman and their dog were getting a book about feminism, and quite a mm. lot of them, let's be honest, were knocked out quite quickly and not very good. And this was the absolute apogee of this. It was just appalling, and. You know, I the thing that really annoyed me about it is I felt that Polly Venn is essentially a good journalist and writer. And there were bits of it where they were quite good, but she had basically written a, a book with a provocative title, and because then they could put a picture of her on the front, and it would go on the table in Waterstones with all the other lady books and probably sell a load. And when you write something like that, and I was very mean about it, very very mean about it. Um, but when you write something like that, not only is there—I mean, I'm not a natural. I don't know why I'm lying to myself saying I'm natural. Not a natural hatchet man. I am. Fortunately, I am. Um, and I actually try and restrain myself and be nicer most of the time. She said at
0: Helen is currently wearing a jumper that yeah, says feminist, feminist killjoy. Feminist right. killjoy. That is my
2: role in life. <laughs> but do you know what? And I feel like this about when you, you know, when and, and quite often when you're a critic you know, you will know people and, like, you know, theatre criticism I think is riddled with this, right? Is that everybody sees each, each other at press nights and you will have to mm. run into people that you've been really horrible about. And then that kind of world it's very hard not to have kind of conflicted loyalties. I mean, the mm. ideal critic is basically a kind of sociopath who never leaves their house. Um... 'Cause then they will never be tainted by any kind of personal friendships or relationships. But in a situation like that, I just think, you know what, that book was probably selling for what, ten ninety nine? Some people that's an hour's pay, right? That's a lot of money. And the same thing, particularly when I'm reviewing theatre, which the prices are often crazy, right? The stall seat for sixty five mm. quid, or even a seat in the balcony is twenty five quid. So if two of you are gonna get fifty, you know, never mind a babysitter, never mind anything else. Then your duty is to those people to go. I respect this your it? money, don't spend it on this crap. Mm. <laughs> and if that upsets people that you're going to have to run into at a party, then sorry. Like, that's just, mm. they should have, I don't know, that's when I get quite cold and I just think, well, you should have made it better then. Mm.
0: Were you conscious of, um, you know, perhaps a sort of structural tension here, which is that if, you know, this word feminism or this movement makes a play for encompassing the hugely divergent experiences of millions of women of different things, you know, in any walk of life it seems that there's going to be disagreements and, and disputes and there needs to be a debate and discussion, but that's very difficult to square with a like a line of thought and theory that claims to be representing 51% of the population, right? I mean, do you, are you is that a tension you're conscious of? It's not entirely
2: how I see I don't see feminism as representing 51%. I see it as an intellectual tradition that seeks to kind of unpick the structural dynamics of gender. I know that right. probably sounds like an incredibly fine distinction, but... Um, there is a, there was a, particularly a couple of years ago, a real tendency to sort of say like anything that a woman does is empowering and therefore feminist, right? Yeah. So if I wear high heels, that's feminist, and you kind of go, well, no, it's not the same as saying you can't wear high heels and be feminist. But you can't just reclaim things, um, or the idea that you know just you know women, yeah, women doing stuff is sort of innately feminist in itself. Um, that's mm. a very strange thing
1: that we were of discussing this off. before um, when we were, yeah, I find the same. But I think this is a neat segue into something that you do believe, Mm. which is that you're now currently um, writing um, a book and can you tell us a little bit more about that?
2: Yeah, it's a history of feminism in currently nine fights. Who knows how many n- number <laughs> of fights will be by the time I finish? Pretty um, frightening. Yeah, it might be 100,000 fights. Um, but uh, what I wanted to do really was, I thought that, you know, um, Catamaran's book was phenomenal and, and uh, I think awakened an entire generation um, to feminism. But She wrote it very much from the prism of, of kind of writing it from her life out and, and did encompass a lot of theory in that. But I think that there, to me it's such a rich intellectual tradition and a practical tradition that I think has really been lost. I think we're really terrible at um, telling those kind of stories. I remember Harriet Harman had a thing. The reason she wrote her memoir, she said, was that she was tired of turning to the index of new Labour memoirs and finding herself not there. You know, and she was deputy leader of the party for a really long time. She was involved in some of its most crucial legislation, like the Equality Act, Um, and just being kind of just that all being sort of slightly written out basically so what I wanted to do was talk to a lot of second wave feminists while they're still around you know a lot of them Mm. are in their 70s and and 80s um, and go back a bit further and kind of sort of say well hang on how did we get to here Um, you know it's a movement that is incredibly splintered but that's not a new thing at all Mm. so I've been just writing a chapter on the vote and you know there were only around I think it's like about a 1,000 to 1,500 militant suffragettes So lots of people who were kind of moved in and out of the Women's Social and Political Union and were in, you know, obviously lots of suffragists too and from other unions too. But, you know, even within that many people they had to, pretty spectacular. Mm. One load of people flounced out quite early on. Their biggest donors, the Pevic Lawrences, left in, I think, 1913, in the spectacular falling out with the Pankhursts, right? These are not new, like, the idea mm. that feminism is riddled with tensions is not, there was no prelapsarian time when everyone in feminism really got along, even in the vote which brought together women from such incredibly different political traditions, you know, you had sort of proper, like, left-wing anarchists versus people who then went on to be fascists in the 30s were all in the same movement, because it was just for one Mm. thing but even then it was riddled with tensions
0: talking of with type of time, but I think it would be an interesting place to, to wrap up on. On the, the practical traditions, can you tell us a bit about how the practicalities of, of selling that book worked? You know, agent, publisher, how did that all, and also, you know, fitting it with your other
2: comments. Yeah, people had said to, had asked me for quite, because I write a lot of columns on feminism, did I want to write a book on feminism? My standard reply was, I'd rather put my hand into a bear trap, thank you very much. Um, and I remember when I told um, another journalist that I was writing this book on feminism, he said, oh, really good. I look forward to the spiteful Sarah Vine review in the bit in the daily panel <laughs> and that's the problem is you have to go into it knowing that there are a couple of things that will definitely happen one is that all the people who hate feminism and think you've gone too far will just say that you know you're a kind of whiny joyless whatever and two there will be everyone will pick it apart like nobody's business and like they wouldn't do to a book by a man for the one thing that you've left out um and, and overlooked and, and I who ha- will be those pickers will that be other feminists um, because we just apply, a, I think you didn't look at Hillary Clinton. We just apply a higher standard of scrutiny and perfection we expected from, from women. Um, and I talked to Robert Webb, he wrote, um, off, you know, he wrote a, a book called how not to be a boy, which is an absolutely beautiful book, mm. but it is incredibly analogous to Catlin Moran's book. So her book is really about, um, a working class girl in a kind of chaotic family where lots of people didn't go to school. Um, you know, there were loads of kids and, uh, in the Midlands, um, and and kind of what she learned from that and how her life developed along with some insights about gender along the way Robert Webb's book is about a boy from a chaotic family some with his dad and violence and drink in the midlands and using that to make some insights into gender and what there has not been Rob's book has been incredibly successful is just that frenzied level of why haven't you covered this why haven't you done this Mm. what about this and I said to him you know has anyone raised like, you know why there's no discussion of transgender issues in the book and he said well no and I said what about race and he said well I talk a bit about the fact you know there was one black guy at my school and we called him Black Steve because this was the 80s and you know political correctness hadn't got as far as you know Lincolnshire um by this point um but you know there was not this sort of expectation that he could speak one universal truthful male experience which I think was the standard mm. that was applied to Catelyn Moran's book which is just it's just, it looks like being progressive, but it's actually incredibly conservative because it's just applying a, just a much higher bar for people, uh, for women to, to clear. I and mean, I
0: think that was the point I was trying to raise earlier. That, yeah. you know, that, like But do you not see that that sort of one thing follows the other? If, you know, maybe not yourself, but there are people who, at, you know, writing these columns, you said, like, I am X because of Y, therefore I can talk on Z, like making a play from their identity to some universalist point, mm. that... That That is a road that leads to, you know, why doesn't this, as you say, this impossible criticism, why doesn't this represent everything?
2: Yeah, and it's an argument I've had with people about the media's coverage of transgender issues, when there is a big strain of activist thought that says that only trans people should write about the subject, and I've argued back and said, well, actually, feminists have had a critique of gender for a really long time, and actually I find that fundamentally quite a conservative position, because it's sort of saying, if you're going to... To, you know fundamentally redefine what when take away and say you can't talk about biology in relation to being a woman, for example, it's actually all about gender identity and not a kind of fusion of the two as I think it probably is then you've, you've you've redefined everyone like not just your own group but everyone's group and I think a lot of those kind of when they're writing people are writing from that very one perspective it's sort of imagine I think it's very much there's no such thing as society right. If you say you can only write about immigration if you're an immigrant, you ignore the experience that everybody else has. It lives in a society that's shaped by immigration. And I understand the impulse behind it from from marginalised communities, and I feel very strongly in the case of women, that you don't want only men writing our stories and writing our lives. But equally well, I don't think you can ever just have a conversation that is only by people who, who purchase entry by their kind of identity token, because that's fundamentally sort of weirdly yeah libertarian kind of conservative outlook there's not one that i subscribe to
0: well listen thanks for being such a um <laughs> nice light light note to finish on um thanks when being... can
1: we expect the book
2: uh yeah about yeah and the reactions to the book uh yeah exactly look out for that mean-spirited sarah Vine <laughs> <by laughs> takedown in about two years time you're already in the bunker so yeah. just <laughs> her down
0: here. anyway listen helen thank you for being such a super guest thank, yeah, you. thank you and for, yeah, um on. great to have you Hello, it's us again with a swift update from our lives. Cassia, what have you been up to?
1: I have been, I've I've had sort of a a bit of a a deadline whirlwind, uh, which is what happens when you're freelance. Um, And so I've spent the last few days kind of manically trying to um, get pieces and and write them as as fast as possible, which is one of the reasons why I think I like that piece of advice from Helen um, so much. Simon, how about you?
0: Uh, I'm having a week off which is for a change, which is quite exciting, um, I filed a section of my book. Uh, a, a,
1: what kind of section of your book was it? A much like?
0: too long section of my book. How
1: much longer was it than what you intended?
0: Uh, three times
1: as long. <laughs> yeah. no, Simon's no, poor editor. <laughs> um,
0: yeah, yeah, well it was better, I think. Uh, anyway, <laughs> three times in, better. in response to that they've delayed publication of my book. Um, <laughs> but I think that's for the best. Um, So yeah, I'm taking this week off um, and then back to the the endless grindstone uh, next week. Anyway, this has been Always Take Notes, hosted as ever by me, Simon Ackham.
1: And me, Cassie Sinclair.
0: Our producers are Olivia Crellin, Ed Kiernan and Liz Davies.
1: Social media is by Zara Hankier, and our graphic design is by James Edgar.
0: We're on all manner of social media. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Always Take Notes. We're on Twitter at Take Notes Always and our website is alwaystakenotes.com.
1: And as ever, do please leave us a review. It really helps. Thank you for listening.